Good morning, church. If you have your Bible, please will you turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. While you go there, I just want to say it was real joy for me to see Brahm up here hubbling and struggling to keep it together. So it isn't always just me who's embarrassed in that way. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 2 from verse 17 to 3 verse 5. Let's read together. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word again and we ask for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to change our lives. We ask that you would move in your church, that you would challenge us, that you would build us up, and we would be stronger for this time together in the word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There are, are two key desires. They are key to faithful preaching, but they often pull at the preacher from opposite directions. And they make faithfulness to preaching feel often like walking a tightrope, especially if the overarching desire for the person who steps into the pulpit is to open the Bible and say sincerely, this is what I believe in my heart God has for his people today. On the one hand, I never want to read into a text an application that is forced or foreign. I never want to miss the point or malign the author's intent. And on the other hand, if there's an application there that the church needs to hear, I never want to shrink back from giving the full counsel of God. And I am not a naturally confrontational person. But I would rather quit than walk the coward's path of not saying what needs to be said. And this passage hits close to home. There's an emotion, an anguish here in Paul that the commentator Hendrickson says, he notes, the very words on the page, pages seem to tremble. It's an anguish and an emotion 
that resembles what I have had in my heart for 18 months, seen in the hearts of the elders of this church for 18 months, seen in the hearts of many in this church since the pandemic started, an anguish for face to face to be together with the people of God. We're in a section of scripture that is deeply personal and is revealing of the pastoral heart of Paul. Paul had planted this church in Thessalonica and too soon had, in his own words, been torn away from them, driven by opposition out of the city and left behind a suffering church facing persecution as they try to hold fast their confession for Christ. Paul's opponents were attacking in his absence. Paul is just using you. Where is he now anyway? And so most of what we've seen in chapter 2 is Paul's defense of how he had ministered when he was among them. He says to them, you know how we were among you. Now at the end of chapter 2, he shifts that defense to why he is not with them. He moves from his past ministry among them to his present absence from them. And he expresses here a depth of emotion that he has for them and a longing in his heart to see them again. Look at verse 17 with me again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Face to face. Oh, how I hope it is something that we won't ever take for granted again. For months last year, we didn't meet. It is something I still, from time to time, wonder if it's something as a pastor I need to repent of. And worldwide, church leaders felt the weight of wondering, where is the flock? It's an experience I hope and I intend never to repeat again. The inability to legally meet tested the church's ecclesiology, our study, our belief of the church, the value that we place on the gathering. And I believe it's revealed a, a poverty of theology worldwide. I was reading this week of a, a growing trend in churches uh, who are seeing this time as an opportunity even, offering online church membership, an online church membership option for their church. One website says this, it is God's desire that you connect with the local church and fellowship with other believers. Amen. However, Grace Church understands that certain circumstances don't allow you to. If that's you, come connect with us by becoming a Grace Church member, and they mean an online member, a logical inconsistency. And these kinds of inconsistencies and oxymorons have been embraced worldwide, online membership, virtual church, live stream and Zoom are good for many things, but they are not adequate for fulfilling the role of biblical church gathering. That's why I've told our staff over and over again, we do not say online church here. And it's why I'm convinced in my heart I'll never lead something like online communion. And as I approach this passage, I've, I have prayed a lot this week and asked people to pray for me as I walk 
a tightrope, hopefully faithfully. And I hope that what I say you will receive with grace and generosity and with introspection as well. Know that it comes from a place of sincerity of heart. I will stand before God one day and it is my hope that I will be able to say that I did everything in my power to present the church. My hope, my joy, my crown of boasting, holy and blameless before Him on that day. There are three attitudes that Paul has towards the church in this passage as his heart bleeds on the pages of Scripture. And these attitudes we are called to mirror in our own hearts today in the way that we relate to the church in general But in terms of a particular focus and application for this moment, how we think about the gathering. We are called, firstly, to a godly ambition, a godly awareness, and a godly anxiety. Number one, an ambition for the church that glorifies Christ. An ambition for the church that glorifies Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, Some Christians try to go to heaven alone, in solitude. But believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. And Paul in this text is in anguish over a flock that he knows is facing great danger and it's a flock that he cannot get to in person. If you read through these verses, verse 17 especially, too quickly you'd miss the intensity of what he's saying. Torn away from you. The the Greek verb has as its root the word orphanos, from which we get the English orphan. And that's what Paul is saying. We feel as if we have been orphaned. Unlike the the modern word, the Greek word could refer both to a child who has lost its parents or to a parent who has been bereft of a child. Paul speaks here of a, a great desire, he says, to see you face to face. And that word is usually used of a consuming passion. It's usually used in a negative connotation for lust or covetousness. Here Paul is using the strength of that word in a positive way. He's desperate to see them face to faith, face to strengthen them in their faith. And this is not just a a passing whim for Paul, but it's something that's linked to the ultimate purpose and reality of his life and the way that he builds his life. We see in verse 19 and 20. He says something about them, about the church that has to challenge the modern notion that it is possible to be or to live as a Christian with a loose affiliation to the church of Christ, or with a lackluster devotion to the church. He says something about them that implies this, that the more intensely you are bound together with Jesus Christ, the more Intensely, you'll be bound together with his people as well. He makes the statement by first asking a question. And if I hadn't read this passage already, you you might think I know the answer to this question. Verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? What am I pouring my life into? What will I boast in on the day when he returns? 
And surely you think the answer must only be Jesus Christ. Isn't Jesus our hope and our joy? We sing, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Paul himself said that him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, Paul answers his own question and the answer is at first very surprising. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, church, for you are our glory and joy? What is Paul saying here? Ought he not just to be boasting in Christ alone? Paul knows a stunning truth. That the desire to have the reward of seeing Jesus face to face on that day. And the reward of having your labor in the church. Your sacrifice and your toil and your devotion laid at his feet. Paul speaks as if he's talking about wearing the church like a crown. He knows that they are not mutually exclusive and they are not competing desires. The desire to have lived a life where Christ is the great reward and to have lived for the joy of sharing with others in the beauty of Christ, they go hand in hand. And there are many today who will check out of the church and whose devotion will wane because the benefits of belonging to the body no longer outweigh the costs or the risks. And who can have no comprehension of the way that Paul chose to live his life. Why would you go through what you went through, Paul? Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received the 39 lashes. Remember the shipwrecks, the stonings, all the afflictions. Why on earth would you do it, Paul? Here is his answer. You are our glory and joy. Do we see this heart in the church today? Paul's saying, you know what I'm in it for? The day when I hand you over to Jesus and you're safe in his arms for eternity, I will rest then. I'll take a very long nap then. Today I fight. I fight your sin. I fight the world. I fight the flesh. And in this passage, he says, I fight the very evil one himself. But I fight because one day my crowning glory will be to hand you over and to say, Jesus, they're yours, they're safe with you. My crown and joy will be to stand before him and see you stand before the judge of all one day and have him say to you, the ones Paul is saying, who I poured my life out for, enter into the joy of your master. Every shepherd must be ready to leave the 99 and to pursue the one. But pray for your elders. Because in this day it feels like I see the 60. Where are the 40? And don't think that because you're not an apostle or because you're not an, a pastor in the church 
that this ambition that Paul has for the church ought not to be your ambition as well. Your joy, your hope, your crown of boasting on that day cannot be divorced from the people whom he loves and gave himself for. And in a day where we demean the, the church of Christ and belittle the importance of its gathering together, we are called to see the church with the eyes that Paul has for them, the eyes that Christ has for his bride, to see its beauty. Yes, we are messy, but we are called to have a high regard for the church of Christ and a love and to give ourselves in self-giving service. Our ambition for Christ's glory must be tied to what God is doing through the mission of the church and tied to the desire that we would strengthen one another in the church. Is this your ambition today? Number two, we see in Paul an awareness of the enemy that prioritizes gathering. Paul wants them to know that he hasn't stayed away by choice in verse 18, we wanted to come to you. Ah, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Their desire to return was not something casual or casually brought up at the odd apostolic missionary team meeting. He's saying our bags were packed. We were at the train station ready to born, board on more than one occasion, but Satan halted us, got involved and has frustrated our plans. The word here for hindered is a military term. When soldiers want to stop the advance of the enemy, they, uh, they would break up sometimes the road behind them and make that travel difficult. That's the word being used. And we don't know what this looked like specifically for Paul. And I don't have time for speculation right now, but I believe what's more important than the what, what Satan was doing to hinder them is that Paul knew it was Satan. Paul knew what was going on. There are moments in Acts chapter 16 where we see the disciples, they want to go somewhere or they want to do something. It says they were forbidden or stopped by the Holy Spirit. But Paul knows how the Spirit moves. Paul knows the way the Lord works. But here we see he knows as well his enemy in this situation, he knows the enemy is opposing him. It's something he's come to expect. He'd said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. Paul knows his enemy. And his concerns here about what Satan wants to do are very clear in chapter 3, verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul knows if Satan is hindering us from getting back to the church, then he's definitely got a plan for the church as well. And Paul knows that their purpose is destruction. We pick up from chapter 3, 3 and 4, that he's worried about even apostasy, that persecution would cause them, would cause the enemy to have a chance to shipwreck their faith. And this concern is, is valid. Satan wants to do this in persecution. His first desire is the literal destruction, the literal killing of Christians. And if that doesn't work, maybe he can reveal and destroy shallow faith. 
And if He can't cause you and I, because we are held by Christ, if He can't cause us to fall away, He certainly would want to and would seek to limit our faith, the effectiveness of it. Afflictions move Christians. They cause movement in our lives. If we aren't moving in affliction towards God and a deepening of our faith and a clinging and an embracing of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, saying He is enough for me, then perhaps towards grumbling and bitterness, compromise and even fear. We want to be ready in afflictions to resist the enemy and to rejoice in Christ. This awareness of where opposition comes from is what helps as well, helps persecuted Christians to stand. Christians who are facing persecution around the world seem to know who is behind it. You've probably heard and seen some of what's been happening in Afghanistan over this last week. Terrible, terrible things. The Taliban have taken control over the country. A new government is being set up. And internationally, there are fears. There's a cry worldwide for humanitarian pressure to be placed on them. The fears are over what's going to happen to, say, women and girls in that culture. What's going to happen to the friends of America who worked with the U.S.? Is calls to get them out of the country and to give them asylum elsewhere. The country needs prayer, does it not? I didn't see this much in secular media, but I've heard reports about how pastors are calling for prayer at what is, is facing them now. Some have received letters from the Taliban. We know who you are and what you're doing. We're coming for you. So they call for prayer, that we would pray for their protection for their provision, but more than anything and overwhelmingly they are calling for prayer that they would be strong, for strength in the Lord, that they'd be able to stand and be faithful. Where we are more comfortable, we are less urgent about prayer. We're less aware of our enemy. We are not being persecuted in our country. The restrictions placed on the churches, I do not believe, is persecution, but that doesn't mean that Satan is not involved, that he doesn't have a plan, or he's an active in trying to hinder the work of the church. And there are many ways, there are many ways that Satan hinders our face-to-face. He does it through pride, through gossip and slander, through selfishness, through racism, He's attempting to hinder our building of gospel relationships. But I believe it's important that we consider today and have an awareness of what he wants to do in these days and in the circumstances brought about by the pandemic. The enemy will always be at work to hinder and oppose genuine Christian fellowship. Before COVID, his aim was to fill our lives with apathy and with busyness, to isolate us so he could pick us off. Why would now be any different? Why would it be different now? Because it's not persecution. It doesn't matter what the government's intentions are or motivations are, good or bad. We need to know that Satan wants to fill our hearts with fear and with apathy. And please, please know that I just, in saying this, I want to emulate Paul's pastoral heart when I say this. 
An extended isolation from the gathering of the church is not good for you. It is not good for you spiritually. Maybe it isn't for for many who haven't come back. Maybe it isn't just about convenience or broken habit. Maybe there is real fear for the safety of of family and vulnerable, vulnerable family or for children or whatever it is. I understand that fear. I have vulnerable family. I have small children. But some things in the Christian life must be non-negotiable. Some things are worse than COVID. Some things are worse than death. And while I'm being very frank as well, let me continue and let grace abound for me. Where are the children? Where are our children? Children need to build strong ties and relationships in the church or we are going to wake up to a generation that is set adrift at sea. I say this out of love. If your commitment to the gathering has waned, your commitment to service and to ministry has waned, you need to ask the question, is he succeeding? Is Satan succeeding in the plans he has in my life? It's time to come back. It's time to fight It's time to think again about what we ought to be prioritizing as the church and to know that a battle rages right now. Someone has said, wherever the Lord builds his church, he builds on enemy-occupied territory and the gates of hell come into operation. We know that he is formidable. Paul speaks of him this way. The scripture speaks of him this way. He's the great deceiver, the father of lies, the ruler of this world, the God of this world. He's a roaring lion whose attacks are ferocious. We sang earlier, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We are foolish if we think that we are his equal by ourselves. The gates of hell are strong, but we know, church, and we need to believe that The gates of hell will not prevail. Satan was defeated at the cross. He is being defeated by the church and he will be defeated when Christ returns. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We need for fear and for whatever divisions are among us, to give way to a godly anger and to a fight and to a devotion. We need a godly ambition. We need a godly awareness. And finally, number three, there is in Paul an anxiety for people that embraces risk. An anxiety for people that embraces risk. Are you troubled at my use of the the word anxiety in a positive sense? I needed three A's though, right? No, it's it's biblical. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of his afflictions, his beatings, his stonings, the shipwrecks. He says, "I'm, I'm constantly in danger wherever I go. And then he says in verses 28 and 29, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. And this was one such church for Paul. 
and his anxiety for them causes him to make a sacrifice and to risk for them. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Whether in his state in Athens, he, maybe it was an affliction that caused him not to be able to come back to the church, whether it was that he needed Timothy's presence there, or he was reticent, it was unthinkable for him to, to split up the team and send his beloved son on this dangerous journey. It was a difficult thing, he's saying, for us to do it. But Paul does something that the enemy doesn't expect. He does something and pays a price of personal sacrifice in order to frustrate his plans. Sinclair Ferguson, in his sermon on this passage, makes an astute observation. He says, Paul pays a price that outwits the enemy. Ferguson calls it the perennial satanic principle that every man has a price. This is the way that Satan thinks. Remember Job? I just need to find the limit of this man's willingness to pay the price, and I've got him. I'll show you. He was frustrated by Job. He was frustrated again by Christ himself. I don't know what Satan was thinking here. For all his craftiness, he has this terrible flaw, a blind spot through which the church can outwit him. It was inconceivable even for Satan that Jesus doesn't have a price. Three times in the wilderness, he tried to tempt him, but Christ could not be bought. And here again, we see him frustrated through Paul's willingness to pay an unthinkable price for the church and for the gospel. He sends his son in the faith. And we learn that sometimes the way that we outwit our enemy is by being willing to sacrifice, being willing even to lose everything for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be aware today that the enemy is at work in the things that are happening across the world in churches. We need to make bold plays like Paul made in order to outwit our enemy. Plays that help strengthen one another and establish one another, the wording says, in the faith. We need fear to be overcome by a godly anxiety for one another. And we need to wake up from our slumber and sacrifice for one another. And I just want to be very honest with you. I thought about this statement the whole week, but I believe it's true. If there are times, extended periods of time, where you cannot gather with the church, with the body of Christ, there ought to be inside of you a growing eagerness a growing anxiety, a growing desperation for face-to-face. -face. Or else maybe you need to ask the question, if Satan is having his way in your heart and your mind, Paul makes a play and he frustrates the enemy and he's willing to do this because he has accepted as central to life something that he will encourage them with as well, that Christ is worth Whatever we have to face, 
And whatever price we have to make, and whatever risk we have to take, in verse 3 and 4, he says, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. So John Calvin comments, he says, Paul teaches that there is no reason why believers should feel dismayed on occasion of persecutions as though it were a thing that was new and unusual, inasmuch as this is our condition, which the Lord has assigned to us. For this, this manner of expressions, we were appointed to it, is as though he had said that we are Christians on this condition. When you start employment with a, an organization, often you sign a, a basic conditions for employment, of employment. And it's no different in the church. If you are a follower of Christ, God's co-worker, he says in this passage, in the gospel, and there are conditions of employment. We rejoice in chapter 1, verse 10, that we have been delivered Paul says, from the wrath to come, wrath is not our destiny as the people of God. But if wrath is not our destiny, then this surely is targets on our backs for trouble and satanic opposition. And Paul is reminding them here to strengthen their faith and hardship. He says, I didn't come to you with a false gospel of your best life now. We came with the message of Christ's suffering and overcoming through death and resurrection. Acts 17.3, we explained, he says to the Thessalonians, we explained from the scriptures how the Messiah had to suffer and rise. It's what he preached in every church, Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We are destined for this trouble. The way to glory is through the cross. And as we follow our, our Savior, we rest in this, knowing the truth, that there is no detail of any furnace that we face that has not been decreed by God who loves us. We know that every moment we face in the furnace we know a presence there that is as real for us as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. And we embrace risk, ultimately because we want to have the heart of Paul. In verse 5, that our labor would not be in vain. The enemy wants there to be fear and apathy among us, an extended retreat where all we do is sit back and survive and ride it out where our labor ceases. And we meet his opposition with a commitment to fight, to count the cost, to pay whatever price is necessary. We need to make risky plays of love because our anxiety for the church and our own spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of our family is greater than any other anxiety. Anxieties for health or economic well-being. Church, don't underestimate the value of little victories today. Every time you commit to come to church, every time you commit to corporate worship, every time we gather, 
Every time you obey Christ, every time a mother prays with her children, every time a father opens the word with his children, Satan is dealt a blow. Every time you refuse to believe the lie that prioritizes earthly things over treasures in Christ, every time you love sacrificially, every time you take a risk to share and to speak the gospel to an unbeliever, Satan is dealt a blow. Satan will not win, for Christ will build his church. And we are sure that this is true. How? Because of the sacrifice that Jesus made, the greatest of all sacrifices to outwit and defeat our enemies. His sacrifice calls us in turn to be filled with a longing. We desire to see Jesus face to face. We want to see him face to face at the end of all this trouble. But what that means right now is that we embrace his mission for us. We embrace his heart for his people. Therefore, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Dear God, it is our, our heart and our hope that we would live lives that bring glory to Christ, that you would use our toil and our strife, striving, that you would use our effort, as weak as it is, Lord, for your glory. We want to follow you and have a heart for your mission. And so I just pray right now at this time, Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would deal with the fears that are in our hearts and the apathy in our hearts that is causing us to be disengaged from your mission in the world. And we pray, Lord, I, I long, Lord, we all long for a day where it's not half-faced to half-faced, where we can remove our masks and sing out loud and boldly and gather in great numbers. We pray that that day would come soon and we ask that you would make us bold and brave. Lord Jesus, you are worth every single sacrifice, every single risk that we take, every act of obedience that costs us something. You are worth it because we love you. We long to see you again. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.